Welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your Don't Look at the Parallel Dimension Speculative Fiction Book Club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we're talking about The City and the City by China Mieville, which was originally published in 2009. Johnny Mieville is another of these writers I first encountered when I was in the army. I read his debut novel, King Rat, in 1998, I think probably the moment it showed up at my local library, and I distinctly remember reading it in our kitchen while I made some food very late at night as I was preparing to work the 12-hour night shift for a few weeks. But I just never went back to Mieville after that, even though I had quite liked King Rat, and we covered his story, Reports of Certain Events in London, on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, which was a story nominated by one of our patrons. And I loved that story. And as I told people about it, I was told in no uncertain terms that I would be a fool not to read The City and the City immediately. And so I have. And they were right. I, I can't believe I let this book sit out there unread for a decade. And I sense a lot more China Mieville in my future. But that is getting ahead of ourselves, so let's take a deep breath and get ready for The City and the City. The City and the City is a detective story. We've been doing a lot of these recently, which is coincidental, but I think also fruitful, since they've all been in different genres of speculative fiction. Indeed, that would make a great topic of conversation on the forum, uh, but that's getting ahead of myself again, and, and this time before I've even completed a single sentence about the present book, uh, it looks like I'm going to have to keep myself in check a little bit this episode. Okay, the the city and the city is a detective story of the police procedural variety, and this just means that rather than a lone private detective like we had in Zodiac, here we're going to see a police department doing its regular job, though of course in unusual circumstances. And this is what Powers is as well, though I'm not sure that I used the term there. I, I should have. Police procedurals, though, tend to be told in the third person and, and often will switch among characters as people with different skills and different roles get to be the point of view character. But that is not the case here. The City and the City is a first person detective story a la Raymond Chandler or a la Zodiac. And we're always going to be in the head of our narrator. And we'll meet him in a moment. But before we do, I want to talk about the setting, because it is both fantastical and weird. Uh, let's start with the fantastical bit. The book takes place in a pair of neighboring imaginary city-states. These are the city and the city of the book's title. But these are the only places that are imaginary. These two city-states are situated in the real world of circa 2005. Everything else you know is real and exists. The U.S., the U.K., Canada, the Cold War, the Second World War, the Internet, cell phones, and so on. And this is actually a pretty classic move in detective fiction. Uh, Raymond Chandler sets a lot of his action in imaginary places in California, even if it's all centered in L.A. Ed McBain, who really perfected the police procedural and was one of the most significant writers of the 20th century, I think, set his stories in a fictional American city just called the city. And I think you can clearly see that influence here. But we can point also to Batman, which takes place in something very much like uh, real world New York, but is in fact in the fictional city of Gotham. And like Gotham, and also like Ed McBain's The City, the two cities that Mieville invents here are grounded in the real world. And in fact, they're one of the best thought out fantasy settings I've ever encountered. Bezel, that's uh, B-E-S-Z-E-L, and Olkoma, occupy a, a region in southeastern Europe that was once part of the Ottoman Empire, and so their languages, which are different, are Slavic. But there is also a lot of German and Turkic in the names of the, the places and the people that we encounter in the, the two cities. 
Okay, so Bezel and Olcom have different languages, Bezian and Illitan, but they're related. They, they share a common and also quite recent ancestor. And if you're thinking that this whole situation seems a lot like the relationship between Serbia and Croatia, you aren't wrong. It very much seems to be an analog for that. And I'm going to talk more about that in the next segment. So I'll, I'll finish up this part of the setting discussion by just saying that the two cities have had a different experience of the post-Cold War world. Olkoma is in an economic boom, while Bez is in an economic stagnation, or perhaps even in a slow economic decline. So one city is shiny and new and has big cars, and the other is beginning to crumble. And of course, this is the stuff of a great, gritty detective story. Okay, so that is a quick summary of the fantastical part of the setting. Now let's talk about the weird. So far, I've been talking about these city-states as being neighbors, and while that's true, it is also a big lie of omission. Because, in fact, they occupy the exact same grid coordinates, the exact same physical and topographical space on the globe. Bezel and Okoma are in different dimensions, we might say, both of which are connected to our world. And that alone is a pretty cool idea, something like pocket dimensions. But this story is going to center around the fact that the barrier between the two realities, and therefore between the two cities, isn't complete. It's thin or even broken in a lot of places. So you could be standing in a park in Olkoma, surrounded by perfectly normal Olkoman buildings, but above those buildings are the tops of slightly taller buildings that are actually in bezel and look completely different. But you also could be looking out your bezel apartment window to see an elevated train going by, which is cool, except that bezel doesn't have an elevated train system. Olkoma does. You are seen across the barrier into the other city. And some streets even have barrier issues, what the locals call cross-hatching, and, and you'll have to dodge your own local traffic, but also vehicles and pedestrians that are actually in another city in another dimension. And it is physically possible to cross between the two cities. In fact, it's quite easy to do, and locals have to be trained not to do this from the day that they are born, not to do it accidentally. It is seriously illegal to cross over. In fact, it's illegal even to acknowledge that you can see or hear things in the other city. And this is a crime that is called breaching. If you do this, you are breaching a national border. And this is strictly enforced. If you cross over, if you do more than glance at a building or a person that isn't in your city, you will be subjected to a shadowy international law enforcement agency called Breach, with a capital B. And once Breach has you, no one will ever hear from you again. And they are always watching. And we'll be returning to this shortly. Before we get into the actual plot of the story, though, I want to talk a little bit more about this weirdness, about how it came about and, and, and some of the implications. Uh, these aren't things that Meville spells out at all, and the reader has to piece these things together. And this is because the characters themselves don't know why or how there are two physical volumes occupying the same topography. But we can tell when, thanks to archaeology, and it looks like something happened 2,000 years ago that either caused two distinct cities to become smashed together like this, or caused one city to be torn asunder as the dimensions split apart. And most scholars now agree that the splitting apart is what happened, rather than it coming together, and this event is called the cleavage. So, that's the setting. It's complicated, and it's awesome. So, we've spent a little time on it, a little more time than we usually do, and we'll talk even more about it in the next segment, I, I promise. But, 
let's get to the plot now. Like so many detective stories, this one begins with a homicide detective arriving at the scene of the crime. A young woman has been murdered, and her body has been left in the park in Bezel. Uh, to most people, she appears to be a prostitute murdered by a client. But Inspector Tyador Borlu doesn't want to jump to conclusions, and Borlu is going to be our narrator for the entire book, so everything we see will be from his perspective. Borlu and his subordinate do some detecting, which starts with interviewing some shiftless teenagers who'd been hanging out at the skate park all night, and this leads them to a van that had dumped the woman in the park, and of course they find the owner who claims the van was stolen and has an alibi that checks out. So this doesn't really get them anywhere, and they put up some posters to try to identify the woman, and of course they get a lot of false IDs. But then Borlu gets a phone call from a man who won't identify himself, but is definitely calling from Olkoma, definitely calling from the other city. Now, this in itself is not illegal. You, you can call other countries, right? But it is unusual. What's more, he's calling because he's seen the posters that Borlu has put up. But he shouldn't see them because they're not in his city. On top of that, he says that Bez and Illitin, that's the Olkoma language, he says that Bez and Illitin aren't even really different languages. They all just pretend that they're different. And this means that the caller is a unifactionist. He's a, a member of an illicit, if not quite illegal, political group that believes that the two cities are one place and should be politically united. Now, what matters, of course, is that this guy, he won't give his name, uh, what matters here is that he knows who the body is. Sort of, anyway. And this is a lead, right? This is great. Except that it isn't. Just by talking to this unifactionist, Borlu risks running afoul of breach himself, even though he is a police officer. And he would definitely be guilty of breaching if he acts on this information that he just shouldn't have. And so he has to pretend the phone call didn't happen, and he has to make up a different reason why he wants to suddenly go investigate the local unifactionists. And this even requires him to make false notes and false diary entries and to lie to his subordinate. And this gives us a real sense of who Borlo is and the lengths that he's willing to go to to solve this crime. So, all right, the, the guy who called from Olkoma says he knows who the dead woman is. So, who is she? Well, she turns out to be Mahalia Giri, a young American woman who is a PhD student in archaeology at the Canadian University that operates a very big, very important archaeological dig in Olkoma. But if she's supposed to be in Olkoma... How then did Mahalia's body end up in Bezel? Well, this seems like a pretty clear case of breach, and so Borlu fills out the paperwork to have the case reviewed by the committee that can hand matters over to breach to deal with, a kind of passing of the buck here. But the committee doesn't turn it over to them. Instead, they hand the case right back to Borlu because they've found CCTV footage of the murder van driving through a perfectly legal border to cross into Olkoma and to return to Bezel on the night in question, and therefore, although there was definitely a border crossing, and there are definitely some jurisdictional questions, there was no actual breach. There was no illegal border crossing. Everything is on the up and up, except for the part about the murder. But Borlu has established that the actual murder happened in Okoma and not in Bezel. And so what this means is that Borlu has to go to Okoma to help Detective Dot find the murderer. And this is a real head trip for Borla, who has to learn to see all the places and all the people that he's been trained his whole life to unsee. And he now has to unsee the people and places that he instinctively wants to look at in order to not get in trouble. And this is a very cool part of the story. 
Well, naturally, the two detectives start with the dig site, and this is where things get very thrillery, and I think very interesting, as we bring in the long history of Olcoma and Bezel into play, uh, as well as academic politics, which is something I, as an academic, find interesting, if uh, also abhorrent. And it turns out that there is something of an urban legend, that there are not just two cities in this space, but in fact, three. And no one knows about the secret third city. It's called Orsini. Uh, no one knows about Orsini because people always assume that whatever isn't in Bezel is in Olcoma and vice versa. And because no one wants to get caught by breach for looking too long at something they shouldn't, uh, nobody notices. And of course, the idea is that the inhabitants of Orsini secretly run everything in Bezel and Olcoma. I mean, they're basically the Illuminati in this urban legend. Now, most people think that this idea is utter nonsense, including the guy who wrote a book that claimed to prove that Orsini exists. Uh, this guy, uh, Dr. David Bowden, has in fact recanted his book, Between the City and the City. And this has allowed him to live in Okoma and to work on the dig and to occasionally even take a PhD student, though he's not a tenured or, or even a tenure track professor because he ruined his academic credentials with this conspiracy theory stuff. So there's a, there's definitely a cautionary tale there. But Dr. Bowden does have one PhD student right now. It's a, another young American woman. And it turns out she's gone missing too. But Borlo isn't sure if he can trust Dot, his uh, Okoma counterpart, or really maybe we should say his babysitter. And so he sneaks off on his own and he finds that this student has not been murdered too. She's just hiding because she's afraid that she's going to be murdered. And what it all comes down to is that Mahalia was obsessed with Orsini. And she confided about this with this other student. Her name is Yolanda Rodriguez. And uh, this other student now thinks that Orsini is after her because they've been found out by Mahalia. And if this is true, then Dr. Bowden is also likely in jeopardy. But he's already gone missing in the, the interim here. So now Borlu isn't investigating a murder. He's trying to protect Yolanda. And what he wants to do is to get her over to Bezel, where he can use his position as a police officer to get her out of the cities entirely and to safety. And Borlu insists the help of Dot, his Okoma counterpart, and uh, Dot agrees that their job is to serve and protect, not to be the agents of pointless nationalist rivalries. And so they arrange to smuggle Yolanda into Bezel through the totally legal and non-breachy checkpoint. And they do also eventually make contact with Dr. Bowden, and he agrees to meet them there and to go to Bezel as well. And then, just as they are between the Bez and Olcomen checkpoints, just as they are standing at a place where the two dimensions meet, where you can look from one into the other, someone from the Bezel side of the border shoots into Olcoma and kills Yolanda Rodriguez. And the Olcoma detective is wounded in this attack as well, and so it's up to Borlu to do something about this. And the problem is that he is still in Olcoma, and the shooter is in Bezel. But where they are is crosshatched, and so he can see the killer across the dimensions and follow him, even though they are technically on mirror images of the same street in different dimensions. And of course, it's illegal for Borlu to be looking at the killer in this way. And the, the killer is about to get away, he's about to disappear into territory that is not permeable. And so Borlu shoots him so that they'll be able to identify him. I mean, he shoots from one city into the other. And of course, this means that he's breached. And so now the shadowy agents of breach descend on him. And when he wakes up in Act 3, he's in an interrogation room. And it turns out that Borlu has already given breach a lot of information under some kind of drug, but they want to know more. 
And it turns out that what they're really interested in is Orsini. They, they've been following this case, and they've actually gotten word that there might really be a secret third city that is a rival to their own power. And naturally, they want to protect their own power that has almost no oversight. And to do this, they co-op Borlu into teaming up with them. And really, he has no choice. Uh, Breach can just execute him whenever they want. But Breach is very careful to obey the rules about their jurisdiction. And they can only continue this investigation because technically they are investigating Borlu's Breach and therefore only indirectly investigating the murders of the American PhD students. What they discover is that Mahalyagiri was stealing artifacts from this Olkoma dig, uh, artifacts belonging to a culture known as the Precursors. And she couldn't get the artifacts out of the dig site because everyone is searched on their, their way out, but she was able to do it by breaching in an area that's not watched, a, a part of the dig that, that is crosshatched, and she would deposit the stolen artifact in Bezel, then return to the Olkoma dimension to just go on with her normal night. And what's more, she was doing this on behalf of Orsini. She'd been receiving messages from someone claiming to be in Orsini who convinced her that the artifacts properly belonged to, to them. Uh, this was someone who knew precisely what the university had in storage on the site of the dig, and this person eventually started giving instructions about which pieces to steal. Now, the problem is that it wasn't someone from Orsini, and Mahalia found this out. She discovered this. She never found out who it actually was. But Borlu has figured out that it's one of the ministers of Bezel who's been selling the artifacts to an American company that's interested in the rumors that these precursor objects have strange physical properties that may be of interest to their R&D division. And when Mahalia found out, when she stopped stealing for them, this minister had her killed. But there's a loose end here, right? There's a, a question. How did the minister even know that Mahalia had found out that she was being deceived? And the answer is, one of the people she went to when she found out was in on it. And that person was Dr. Bowden, whose response was to bludgeon her to death on the spot with one of the precursor artifacts. And then he called the minister for help, who sent the van over from Bezel. And then Bowden betrayed Yolanda here, and he set up this shooting at the border, and this is all to save his own life. And that brings the plot to an end, though we do get an interesting coda in which Borlu is told that because he breached, he'll never be able to return to Bessel, and that he therefore has to be an agent of breach now. He can go on living. He can go on living in his homeland even, but he can never really be a part of it again, and he'll never even be able to talk with his loved ones. And that's how the story ends. Okay, that was a very long recap, almost certainly the longest I've ever done on the show. So let's move right along into our themes and motifs segment, where I really just want to talk about how this book is a microcosm of 20th century Europe. And I want to focus especially on nationalism, on political ideology, and on police states. Let's start by returning to the setting and looking more closely at the culture and the history of, of Bezel and Okoma. As I said in the recap, you won't be wrong if you're thinking about the relationship between Serbia and Croatia in the 20th century. Uh, these cities really seem to be a strong analog for this problematic real-world relationship. Like Serbia and Croatia, Bezel and Olkoma share essentially the same language, though they would be offended to be told that. They used to share the same alphabet even, but that's changed in the last century. And here's what Borlu says about this. I find this very interesting. If you do not know much about them, Illitin and Bez sound very different. They are written, of course, in distinct alphabets. Bez is in Bez, 
34 letters, left to right, all sounds rendered clear and phonetic, consonants, vowels and demivowels decorated with diacritics. It looks, one often hears, like Cyrillic, though that is a comparison likely to annoy a citizen of Bezel, true or not. Illitin uses Roman script. That is recent. Bezel here is the analog to Serbia, and, and the Serbian language has kept its old Cyrillic alphabet, while Croatia has adopted the Roman script. That is a bit simplistic, though, because people do write Serbian in Roman script, and, and that's our alphabet that we use in English, by the way. Uh, but that's not the official position of the Serbian government, right? Officially, it's the Cyrillic alphabet. Now, in this speculative world, Illitin, the old common language, had its own calligraphic script that was distinct from that of Bez, but a reforming politician at the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, when Olkoma and Bezel achieved independence, uh, did away with this script. And this is true of Croatia as well, which used a distinct script called Galgalitic, which you can see in manuscripts, but, but also in the, the Zagreb Cathedral, if you ever go to Croatia on a, a Game of Thrones tour, for example. Now, Glagolitic did, though, disappear earlier, and, and it disappeared for different reasons. And what Mievel has in mind here, and, and, he, and he mentions this in the text, is that the Turks themselves did something similar under the leadership of Ataturk following the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. And so, even though Turkish has its own alphabet, if you go to Istanbul today, the, the signs are all in Roman script. And there are some other ways that Mievel makes this analogy apparent. Bezel and Okoma have different religions, just as Serbs and Croats are largely Orthodox or largely Catholic, and they had a very different experience of the Second World War as well. Serbia was occupied by the Nazis and, and suffered terribly at the hands of the Nazis, while Croatia was allied with the Nazis and in fact were the, the real direct agents of the Serbian suffering. Now that's not quite what happened with Bezel and Okoma, but the cities were non-combatants, but they picked sides. They were non-combatant allies, and Bezel was a non-combatant ally of the Soviet Union, and Olkoma was a non-combatant ally of the Nazis. Now, the analogy breaks down a bit when we get to the 1990s, and of course this was a, a period of horror for Serbia and Croatia. Uh, I, I won't dwell on that here, though that was when I was an American soldier, and it's very important to me. And it's, it's not entirely clear to me whether either or both of the cities were part of the Soviet bloc during the Cold War, but I have the impression that they weren't, but that they also weren't part of NATO, which is precisely the position of Yugoslavia, which contained Serbia and Croatia. Uh, this was precisely the position of Yugoslavia during the Cold War as well. In the aftermath, though, they have taken very different paths, and, and this is where we can start to talk about political ideology before we circle back to thinking about nationalism. After the Cold War, Bezel embraced democracy and has diplomatic relations with the United States, but is in economic decline. While Okoma is a military dictatorship, and therefore is embargoed by the United States, but is nonetheless in the middle of an economic boom, as other Western countries are, are perfectly happy to invest there. And so the two cities are themselves in a bit of a Cold War in the, the sense of having a clash of political ideologies. And indeed, Inspector Borlu is a civilian police officer, while his counterpart in Okoma, Senior Detective Dot, is a member of the militia. This is a soldier performing police duties. But this isn't really where the political tension in the book lies. In fact, I would say that one of the things we're meant to see is that both Dot and Borlu don't really care about politics. They care about staying out of trouble themselves as much as possible, and they care about solving crimes and even preventing them when they can. 
But there is political unrest in both of these cities. Uh, We've talked a little about the Unifactionists already, and there are chapters in both cities, uh, people who believe that it should really be one city with just a complicated topography. But both cities also have illicit right-wing political organizations as well, called the True Citizens in Basel and Coma First in Alcoma. These are nationalist organizations, and we'll talk about nationalism next, but they are also authoritarian organizations, and Borlu talks about how the members of the True Citizens have no respect for the police because the police are just agents of a weak state. And while we're here, let's, let's just take a quick detour into talking about police states, then we really will talk about nationalism. Okoma has less of a problem with these political organizations than Bezel does, because they're already an authoritarian state, or at least that's what Dot believes. Aborlu shows that, at least as far as unifactionists are concerned, that doesn't seem to be quite true, and, and there may be something here about the blindness of police states, because they're unwilling to accept, or maybe even unwilling to see, deviance the way that an open society like Bezel can. But the largest manifestation of a police state in the city and the city is Breach. Breach has ultra-national authority and very little oversight, right? Really, no one can tell Breach what to do, and Breach can just do whatever it wants. Breach is tapped into every means of communication in each city, and it has a network of informants who can get them information that they haven't already automated. Uh, Breach even has skeleton keys that will open any door. It can start any car in both cities. And they have the power of transgression, right? Breach agents travel as they wish from city to city without any regard for boundaries. Uh, They can step through breaches as shortcuts rather than going the long way around. And this is a power that is denied to the citizens of the two cities. And Breach is terrifying. They operate in the shadows. They watch everything And they will come for you if you look too long at the wrong thing. When we go with Borlu to a a meeting of the committee that refers police matters to Breach, one of the the BEZ members describes Breach as alien. it's, It's clear in the context that this just means foreign. That's what the word means in Latin. But because of the way that Borlu from time to time glimpses a Breach agent in the shadows, and the way that they are described when we see them dealing with an American visitor who breaches, I spent some of the book wondering if they were actually going to turn out to be aliens in the the sci-fi sense of that. Now, of course, they aren't. Breach is just people. Indeed, they themselves are people who breached and have been recruited and turned into angry police, as Borlu thinks of them. There are people who've been ripped from their lives, ripped from their families, and forced to work for the police state that has done this to them. That is to say that the the very agents of the police state are the very victims of this police state, and there is no terrifying hierarchy over them. There there actually aren't that many agents, and they make decisions by quick majority rule votes. So people who have been victimized by this police state turn around and become victimizers, really just through inertia. And that is a, a notion that is both scary and sad, heartbreakingly sad. All right. Let's talk about nationalism. I know we talked about this when we read Guy Gabriel Kay's book, A Song for Arbonne, but let me give a a quick refresher. Nationalism isn't the same thing as patriotism. Patriotism means loving your homeland, which can mean your country, though it can also just mean your hometown or your home region. And of course, you can have all of those types of patriotism at the same time. It's not a zero-sum game. But nationalism is something completely different. Nationalism is a belief system. It's a way of perceiving the world. 
Nationalism believes that every person has an ethnic identity, a, a national identity, and that that identity is the most important identity a person can have. In a nationalist worldview, being an American is more important than being a Christian. Your, your ultimate loyalty is to your nation, not to your church. And we live in a world in which this idea is dominant, but that is a recent move. Nationalism is a new idea that grew up in the 18th and 19th centuries and had to compete, and, and, and had to compete often violently against other worldviews. But okay, that's all stuff that we've talked about before, but, but here's the new stuff, the stuff that Mieville is working with here in The City and the City. Nationalists had to do a lot of work to convince people that they were part of a specific nation. They had to invent many of these nations and many ethnicities out of virtually nothing. And in this book, Mieville shows us different aspects of this work in motion. Part of this work was about constructing a language by forcibly unifying several regional dialects, but also by deciding which dialects didn't count, which dialects were their own distinct language, and often on not very sound principles. This is, in fact, the story of Serbo-Croatian becoming Serbian and Croatian, even though to an outsider these might as well be the same language. And that's certainly the attitude of the unifactionists here, and it's fascinating that saying that, that saying that Bez and Illiton are the same language, is a radical political idea that could get you in trouble. There are, of course, other markers of ethnicity besides language, uh, markers such as clothing and food and architecture. All of this is also present in the city in the city where certain colors are deemed Bez and thus illegal in Olkoma, and vice versa. It is always clear which buildings are Bez and which Olkoman, and Mieville writes a lot about different cuisines and different types of coffee. But what's really fun here is that Bez and Olkomans even walk differently than each other. They have unique gates that foreign visitors have to learn to recognize in order to avoid accidentally breaching by seeing the wrong person. And this is nationalism taken to an extreme. I mean, it's it's like the Ministry of Silly Walks meets the Nazi Party here in a real terrifying way. Another necessary task in convincing groups of people that they have a shared identity is in convincing them that this isn't a new idea at all, that they've always had a shared identity, and that this can be traced through time. Philology, the, the study of language, was a big part of this, but so was archaeology. Throughout the 19th century, European archaeologists worked really hard to prove that Germans or Serbs or Poles had historical claims to a certain territory based on artifacts dating back centuries and, and, and sometimes even more than a, a thousand years. And this was a huge part of my field of early medieval history during the 19th century, when scholars really wanted to trace the movements of migrating Germanic tribes and to find the ancestral German homeland. And all of this was done in the service of describing the shared past of the German peoples and in detailing all the places they could claim as their own territory now in the, the 19th century and the, the 20th century. And these were claims that mattered viscerally during the Second World War. Today, most scholars in my field think this work is nonsense. For one, it's unclear how a belt buckle or a type of latrine can have an ethnic identity, but it's also unclear how we can use artistic patterns in jewelry and pottery to indicate that the people who use them had this or, or that ethnic identity. And, and, you know, to think about this in modern terms, wearing socks made in Vietnam doesn't make you Vietnamese any more than wearing an eagle belt buckle would make you an Ostrogoth. But this was serious work with serious political implications all the way until the Second World War. 
Whole ethnic identities were built on the foundations of ancient decorative belt buckles. And wars and genocides have grown from the invention of those identities and the claims to territory. Governments supported archaeologists and their excavations because they were useful to this nationalizing project. And this was especially true in the empires that had divided up Eastern Europe. Germany, the Habsburg Empire, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire. And we see this very same thing happening in Bezel and Olkoma. Through some unexplained element of the cleavage, most of the pre-cleavage relics have ended up in Olkoma rather than in Bezel, and this has led to entirely different attitudes about these relics. In Bezel, there's an official policy to just not care about them, to disregard these relics as any kind of indicator of legitimate claim to the territory. But in Olkoma, because they have these relics, these relics are used to bolster claims to supremacy, claims that the culture here was always Olkoman, and that Bez culture is the weird post-cleavage offshoot that doesn't have a strong claim to this territory. In the middle of all of this, of course, are the outsiders who are doing the actual work of excavating the artifacts. But they're watched. There are always two Olkoman archaeologists at the dig, and one of them is a militia informant. And ultimately, the plot hinges on a Bez politician's plan to weaponize the artifacts to take something that Olkoma regards as an advantage in their nationalist rivalry, and to use it against them by giving it away in exchange for foreign investments that Bez badly needs. In the end, even the political ideologies are subordinated to nationalism. They simply become cultural markers the way that the clothing and the food and the silly walks are. And I should say that we spend a good chunk of the book thinking that the Bez right-wing politician who has ties to the true citizens is going to turn out to be the bad guy. But we're wrong. In, in the end, it's the leftist politician, or center-left, really. It's this center-left politician who's the villain who is being aided by the true citizens, and he has some choice lines at the end of the book when he sets aside his political ideology in favor of his nationalism. For him, Okoma is the ultimate enemy, and he sees Breach as a force that protects the sovereignty of Okoma over that of Bezel, and so he has no qualms about undermining them. In fact, he wants to undermine them. In the end, Miaville has written a book that really tries to get at the experience of living in the Balkans in the 1990s, perhaps even in the very aftermath of the Cold War, right on the precipice of war and genocide. But he does end this story on an optimistic note. Our humble civil servants have no problem teaming up across national boundaries and across national rivalries in order to, to save the day, and, and really in order to save the day from politicians and businessmen, and, and maybe even from academics. One of those civil servants, Inspector Borlu, joins the terrifying police state, but he has the mind of a reformer here, and he leaves us with this. There may be others who perceive the traditional breach way, the levering of intimidation, that self-styling as a night fear. Well, I, using the siphoned-off information we filch online, the bugged phone calls from both cities, the networks of informants, the powers beyond any law, the centuries of fear, yes, too, sometimes the intimations of other powers beyond us, of unknown shapes, that we are only avatars, was to investigate, as I have investigated for years. A new broom. Every office needs one. Okay, well, 
I've run long again, really long, actually, I fear. So I'll make our last segment short. It's clear, I'm sure, that I loved this book. But I'll just pick out three things that really drew me into it. First and foremost is the world and the world building. Bezel and Olkoma feel like real places to me, like real places grounded in both time and place, situated in history and situated in the wider world around them. Mieville has thought very carefully and very thoroughly about these imaginary cultures, from their language to their architecture, and even their coffee and their cars. Just as important as how thoroughly conceived and developed the world is, is how Mieville builds it for us. This story is a first-person account directed at an audience who has heard of Bezel and Okoma before, but doesn't really understand. And so Borloo often doles out big chunks of information, but it's always information that is in service to the plot. The background details, on the other hand, are, are things we have to figure out for ourselves. And the first chapter of this book is just magnificently immersive. I mean, it's jarring, really, because there's no sense that this is a fantasy world other than that I don't know the names of these places. But it seems like I should, and, and I can piece together something of their history simply by thinking about the names of people and places. And I start to wonder if Bezel really is some small city-state near Bulgaria that I've just never heard of. It's a really unsettling feeling, and it is magnificently done, and it pulls me in immediately. Mievel is also a master of his characters. Borlu has a distinct voice, and I also really love the comedic profanity that Dot employs as frequently as possible. And I find Borlu a really sympathetic character. He's a quintessential detective. He's alone in the world, married to his job. But he tells us about his two long-term lovers, whom he feels fondly about, and he even wants to say goodbye to them when he joins Breach. And the same is true about his subordinate, a, a young policewoman named Corwy. It's clear that he has paternal feelings about Corwy, and, and we're left with the picture of a 50-ish man who wishes he'd made time to have a family, but who always put his job first. And there's some sadness there, but, but also a quiet patriotism, a, a dutiful civil servant who put the needs of his community over his own desires, a chivalric hero, as we've talked about with other detectives. And this is something that stands in stark contrast to the rabid nationalism that lurks in the background here, and is also at the core of the hopeful ending. But as much as I love Borlu, my favorite characters in this book are the cities themselves, Bezel and Olkoma. These seem like real places to me, and since I devoured this book in just two sittings, right now I'm having real trouble imagining going back out into the real world of my own city. And I'd like to just give one example of this. I don't think I've read nearly enough excerpts for a book that's this good. Laced by the shadows of girded towers that would loom over it if they were there, Ascension Church is at the end of Volkhofstrasse, its windows protected by wire grills, but some of its stained panes broken. A fish market is there every few days. Regularly, I would eat my breakfast to the shouts of vendors by their ice buckets and racks of live mollusks. Even the young women who worked there dressed like their grandmothers while behind their stalls, nostalgically photogenic, their hair tied up in dishcloth-colored scarves, their filleting aprons in patterns of gray and red to minimize the stains of gutting. The men looked, misleadingly or not, straight off their boats, as if they had not put their catches down since they emerged from the sea until they reached the cobbles below me. The punters and bezel lingered and smelled and prodded the goods. And this just feels real to me. It feels lived in. I can imagine myself here at the end of Volkhofstrasse, eating breakfast in view of the church and the market. I can hear it, I can smell it, and I can see it. 
And I also understand something about Borlu's life, what the city is for him. And that makes it all come alive, makes it all real, even though it's all imaginary. Now, of course, the, the city as character is a real hallmark of the detective story, and it's one of the many things that Mayaville nails about this genre. Borlu has a voice that feels authentically like the Eastern European Raymond Chandler, someone who has an eye for social and economic history and who sees the underclasses as not just human, but as vital to the working of his society. And something that really jumped out to me about this book in comparison to Zodiac is that Mayaville has also mastered the pace of the detective novel. When we talked about Zodiac, I complained that it was just too long, but the city and the city is just as long, but it doesn't feel like it. And the difference is that Mieville has a better command of the pacing. He gets that the acts need to get dramatically and rapidly shorter as we go, whereas Stevenson's third act just ballooned and ballooned and, and was really just out of control. Well, that brings my review to a close. I loved this book, and I'm glad that I read it. And I write in this genre, too. I, I have a recurring hardball detective who works in a fantasy city solving weird fiction cases. And although I've been writing other stories lately, Mayville has me eager to return to the adventures of Paul Henslow as soon as I can. And if you want to check out my detective stories, you can listen to a reading of Goodbye to All That on the Tales to Terrify podcast. It's episode number 299. I do also have a novella that you can get called The Quality of Mercy. It's uh, available on Amazon. The The podcast is free, of course, but you, you will have to pay about a dollar for the ebook of the novella. And if you do check either of those out, I, I hope you'll let me know what you, you think, uh, especially by comparison to what Mieville does. I mean, I know I'm not going to come out on top of that comparison, but I'll still appreciate the, the criticisms. In fact, I think they'll probably be quite helpful. Speaking of letting me know what you think, I hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytablemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and the motifs that I focused on, but especially on what I left out. And even though this was a pretty long episode, uh, twice as long as I usually do them, there's an element of this novel that I've left out, and that's the religious difference between Basil and Olcoma. I did mention that this parallels the, the real-world division of Orthodox and Catholic Christianity in Serbia and Croatia, but I didn't spend any time talking about what Mijavil does with that here. The Bez are Orthodox Christians, as we would expect in the analogy, but the Olkomans are not Catholic Christians. Uh, they don't actually seem to be Christians at all. Instead, the quasi-official state religion is the Temple of the Divine Light, uh, called the, the Lux Templars by Borlu. I'm not sure why Mayville did this or what he had in mind, and I would love to hear your thoughts about it. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GLMcDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Next time, we're heading back to the world of comics with Jeff Lemire's sci-fi story, Descender. There are several volumes of this out already, but we're just going to read the first one, which is called... 10 stars. I'm really looking forward to it. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 